Well, welcome in to Lindsay Lane North. Man, this is our 1030 service. We are glad to have you, whether you are here physically or you are online. Uh, man, thank you, Chuck and Jeannie and the band. Man, what an incredible job leading us in worship. If you haven't noticed, we are missing a vital member of our team. Uh, and so Will and Emily uh, Stutz, they went in on Thursday night uh, to get ready for the arrival of their, their son. And he waited until about midday yesterday uh, to come. Already 41 and a half weeks uh, behind, uh, through the pregnancy, uh, he finally came in. And we, are, we could not be more thrilled. I think we have a picture of Robert Thomas Stutz. There he is. Eight pounds, four ounces, 20 and a half inches long, I think is what he said. So, uh, man, we are super, super excited for him. And I know that he is watching online because he can't go a week without hearing one of my messages. He just, I know how, how he is with that. So we would like to say to, to Emily and Will, man, we are so thankful for you and excited for you to be able to welcome uh, this little one into your home. So can't wait to get snuggles myself. So, uh, man, I am Super grateful for that, uh, grateful for a team that, that he has assembled alongside him that can lead in his absence, and man, we are a blessed church, to say the least. Uh, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're in the third part of our three-month series in the book of Mark. Uh, we are ending with Jesus' ministry to the nations. We talked about at the beginning chapters of Mark, Jesus was focused on his Galilean ministry to the Jews. Then there's a transition, or in the middle of Mark, there's a transition to where he really begins to focus and hone in on his small group of disciples, of his followers. More than fans, they're followers, those that are invested in what the kingdom is going to look like. Not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of his father, David, the kingdom of God the Father, right? And so then he makes a turn. And these last chapters are focused on his ministry to us. We are Gentiles. We are not Jewish born, right? And so we are part of the Gentile Race, right? That is, that God is making headway toward. He is providing salvation, not just the Savior, the Messiah of the Hebrew people. That's what the Old Testament uh, scholars, that's what the rabbis taught, that he would save his people, Israel. But God's scope was more, was larger than that. He desired to save every tribe tongue and nation, right? And so he does that in these last chapters. We've talked about Jesus's claims to authority, man. We see in his triumph and entry, right? He is claiming to be Messiah, to be king, to be prophet and priest. He is making these claims and then he is challenged in those claims. There are tests, there are traps that are laid for him and each one of them he answers perfectly, right? He proves to be who he said he is. But when we talk about this, not everybody that found themselves in these groups did, uh, didn't believe in Jesus. Not, not all of them were skeptics. Some of them 
truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed him. And so rather than to challenge his authority, they began to acknowledge his authority. There were things that we see, people that got it, people that understood what Jesus was trying to say, understood who Jesus was, what he had done. They got it. They grasped it. And their lives were forever changed. We see it first in Mark chapter 12. We see it in the wisdom of a scribe. Now a scribe by profession was one whose job before the printing press, obviously, they were literally transcribing the text of scripture. They became very intimately aware of the text of scripture because that was their profession. They wrote it from one page to another. They wrote the text of scripture. They were a scribe. Matthew tells us he wasn't just a scribe, but he was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of the religious sect of Pharisee. Listen to what he says in verse 28, Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So this young man is hearing all the questions being asked of Jesus by those intending to trap Jesus. And because Jesus answers all of them well, he goes, hey, here's a question that I've got. And this is as good of a person as I can think to ask this question to. What is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered. The first thing he says is very clearly, not up for debate. This is very, very important to the Hebrew people. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the John 3.16 for the Hebrew people, right? This is the for God so loved the world. This is, this is the passage of scripture. Even if you don't have a whole lot of connection to your roots, you know Deuteronomy 6.4 as a Jewish boy or girl. It was known as the Shema from the first word of the verse, Shema, meaning to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When I took uh, Hebrew in college and then in seminary, uh, many people have asked me like, oh, okay, well, you know Hebrew, so say something in Hebrew. <laughs> well, it doesn't work that way. It's not like Spanish. I can say things in Spanish, but biblical language, something that you read and you can decipher, but it just doesn't work that way, right? And so, and so, the only thing that I ever memorized was what was going to be on my final in my Hebrew class. And I had to recite before we left, our Hebrew professor made each one of us recite the Shema in Hebrew. It's the only Hebrew I know. You ready for it? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Of all the texts of Scripture, this was the most important. And listen what he says. And you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Well, he was right whether the the scribe agreed with him or not. But whatever, gold star for the scribe. You are right, teacher. You have said truly that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's well documented that most of the religious elite in Jesus' day stood in opposition to Jesus' ministry. Right? It's well documented in Jesus' own words. Listen, you don't call people a brood of vipers or whitewashed tombs or of their father, the devil, unless... They are in opposition to you, right? These were, these were guys that had problems with what Jesus had to say by and large. They would be the people that would ultimately be responsible for Jesus' death. They would force the hand of the Romans to such a degree that they would say, Listen, you can think he's innocent if you want. Let his blood be on us and our children. Crucify him. It would be the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the rabbis, and the Sanhedrin that would lead the charge in this. And there was great debate in this time about what was the greatest commandment. After all, there were 613, depending on how you read and interpret the Old Testament covenants, there were 613 commandments that you had to keep. In order to be perfect in the way of the law, 613 commandments had to be kept. Now, they even made it more complicated in creating the tradition of the elders that were all of the thousands of covenant of com, uh, commandments that kept you from breaking the 613. Jesus would argue, actually, you created this, and in creating this, it had actually gave you reason, justifiable reason in your mind to actually break my covenant, break my commandments, right? So it worked against them, but they had all these commandments. What's the most important? Well, I think just about everyone could have told you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? This is John three sixteen for the Hebrew kid. And second, he says to love your neighbor as yourself. He speaks of love. If we have love, then we have completed, then we have met the requirements of all the commandments. Jesus isn't speaking about the ritual external uh, religion of the day. He's speaking to their heart. If God has your heart, if God has everything 
you are, then everything else will follow, including your love for one another. You will love others that are made in his image. Why? Because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, other gospel accounts, Luke actually tells us that the young man, the scribe, is the one who actually gives him the two commandments. He gives them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It presents it as if it was the young man's idea. But regardless, the young man, the scribe, and Jesus are on the same page, right? They're on the same page. And that's not super incredible, until we understand what Jesus has just said in between these. Luke tells us that when the young man tells him that he is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the question is then asked, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right off the bat... If you are a Hebrew in Jesus' day, when you hear the parable, the title, The Good Samaritan, gloss over, baby. You're out. But then he proceeds to tell them that the worst imaginable nationality of people in the world are included as their neighbor. More than that, they acted more neighborly than the Jewish leaders, the Levite, the priest. No, no, no. None of them could compare to how neighborly the good Samaritan was. This would have been a deal breaker to the religious elite. There is no way, because see, the Samaritans were the half-breeds. They were worse than the pagans because they were the half-breeds. They were half-pagan, half-Jewish, and so when they, they were poisoning the Jewish gene pool, they hated one another. Yet despite Jesus' answer, despite the fact that he then tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan that just happens not to be recorded in Mark... The young man says, you're right. You're exactly right. And to love God and to love my neighbor, even the Samaritan that I hate, are the greatest possible things. And more than that, he says, he claims what the Old Testament prophets tried to get everybody to understand, right? What does he say there? He says that, that to love God and love neighbor is much more than all of burnt offerings and sacrifices. In Israel's history, there were very few times where sacrifices to God stopped. There were very few times that Passovers were not observed and the feasts were not observed. Man, externally, the people of God never stopped worshiping God. The problem was internally. Internally, their hearts were callous. And cold against God. You see, with God, worship has never been an external thing. It's never been about raising your hands or not raising your hands. It's never been about banging drums or an organ. It's never been about a cappella or with a guitar. It's never been about those things. It's never about whether you're sitting in pews or chairs. We like chairs, but I can tell you when I get here on a Friday and I'm cleaning, 
I don't like chairs. Amen, Dustin? These things get super wonky. It's not about any of that. It's about the heart. This scribe sees past all the offense to the truth to what Jesus says. And Jesus responds with, you are close to the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know what happened to the scribe. Scripture doesn't tell us. There are things that are painfully absent in Scripture that I've got a list of questions, right? Like what happened from like age 13 to age 30 with Jesus. Like, good night, God's in the house. Isn't somebody taking a journal? Like, what is going on here? You're talking about 20 years and it's just nothing. Crazy. There's a lot of questions I have. This is one of them. Right? What happened to the scribe? We don't know. He was close to the kingdom of God. Do you know what God was doing? In a group of people that were calloused against God calloused against Christ, completely opposed to everything, even in that field, amongst that group of people, God was doing a work. What did we just sing? Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Why? Because you never stop working. Right? Even when those things don't make sense to us, even though when you would think, Jesus, for 15 chapters, you have wasted your time on these people. Tell the scribe to get lost. Jesus says, you are close to the kingdom of God. There are people in our lives that when we start going down the list of people we need to share Jesus with, that we have written off because they are too far gone in our minds. They're too far gone for the gospel to reach them. Now, we may not believe that theologically, but boy, the way that we conduct ourselves around them says that we believe it practically. We are practically atheists, right? We are practicing that around them, right? But even in the most unplantable of fields, God is working. This is what we see. He cut through the fat of the rituals and all of the shadows of, that were supposed to point people back to the heart of worship. And he saw his heart. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Part of acknowledging Christ's authority is to recognize his power to change a heart. His power to change the heart of the person that you and I would say is out of reach. Uh, when we were renovating this building, um, we did everything. My gracious. We did it. Not necessarily to this sanctuary, but the building behind us where the kids and stuff are. Man, if there was something to be done, we did it. We gutted it. We treated for termites. We got into the slab. Uh, we redid plumbing. We redid HVAC. Um, uh, we pulled wire, electrical, did all of everything. And the first day that we were tearing everything out, the person we had overseen and since went on to be with Jesus, Jeff Hill, uh, was overseeing. And so his wife, Mona, was there. And how many of you have been taught by Mona Hill in Elkmont? Yeah, that's what I thought. A lot. 
There's a lot, like everybody has been taught by Miss Mona in Elmont, and uh, she was a teacher here for a long, long time. And uh, she began to go through all of the people at Maine, that, all the people that were around. She began to like identify them and tell me a little bit about them. Oh, this boy, he was a good kid. This kid, he was a good kid. And then he gets to his now one of the pastors at the Maine campus, Greg Wise. If you know Greg Wise, you know Greg Wise. If you don't know Greg Wise, it'll happen eventually, and then you'll know. Um, she gets to Greg and goes... Now, this kid's a good kid, this kid, and her whole face changes. Now, Greg, and she just pauses. And what she did in her mind, she, she was saying, she said, when I found out that he became a Christian, my jaw hit the floor, right? Like, she was sharing this to me, and we were laughing, and Greg was laughing. We were having, all having a good time uh, with it because he was that person, right? Like, far away from God. He'll tell you in his own testimony, but God was working. He was close to the kingdom of God, and God eventually won him to his glory, right? And so, who in our life have we written off? Secondly, we see the wealth of a widow. We first, we see the, the wisdom of a scribe. Next, we see the wealth of a widow, Mark 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, to understand what was happening, we need some context in that day. We need some backstory of what was going on. Josephus was a historian in the first century, and he writes a little bit of context that we can take into consideration as we read this. Practices within the temple. The giving of the temple looked like this. There were 13 trumpets... They called them the 13 trumpets. They were trumpet-shaped receptacles. That's a hard word. Receptacles. This is not a trumpet-shaped receptacle, but you can just imagine a, a, a larger top and it going down into a funnel-like shape and then down into a chest at the bottom. 13 of them, nine of them were for the temple tax. They were a way to keep people accountable. Hey, when you walk by, you need to give your temple tax. This was, quote unquote, as we would say, the tithe, right? This is that 10%, give your temple tax and keep going, right? This is part of your worship. This is part of obedience to God. Nine of them, of the trumpets, were like that. And then there were four that were for offerings and gifts above and beyond that. They were trumpet-shaped to maximize the amount of sound when money was given. More than that, there was a seating area directly across from them. It was about 200 square foot where these trumpets, these, these receptacles stood. And right across from them where Jesus is sitting in this story, there was an audience 
It was a spectacle. It was a thing that everybody witnessed giving. And so people would come in with their gift. Got a quarter here. And they give their gift. But that's not really how it happened. What actually happened is people would go to the money changers. Say, look, I've got this quarter here, but I'm wanting to impress my friends. So I need more coins. I'm going to give you this quarter to give me 25 pennies. So I'm rolling up in here like a VBS <laughs> penny drive champion. You don't have any idea how many Ziploc bags were shook in my face <laughs> the week of VBS. I want you to change this into 25 because, listen, that group over there is expecting me. I've got a lot of money. Now, I don't want to give a ton. What I'd rather do is get smaller coins in the smallest denomination you got so that when I give my quarter, it doesn't sound like kerplunk. It sounds like... Oh, wow. You hear? The audience is, man, this guy is good. They don't know how the value of these is. It's good. And I'm through. I'm just kidding. I got more. Right? They became this giant display of giving. These rich people gave coin upon coin upon coin to the amazement and the applause of men. It was 100% external. It was 100% a pride thing. And they gave, not extravagantly, they gave out of the excess that they had. What, what, did they, what did Jesus say? He said these people gave out of the abundance. Meaning, once the bills had been paid, after the money had been tabulated, all other superficial purchases had been made, groceries had been bought, God got a portion of what was left over. But he got a portion in the smallest coins possible to make it look like the people were giving extravagantly. And then there was the widow. What she gave was the smallest coin, two of the smallest coins in circulation in that day. In fact, many of them would have not bothered if they had dropped this amount of money. They would have not have bothered to stoop down and pick it up. In much the same way that many of you don't stop and pick up a penny when you see it on the ground. In fact, the amount that she gave was... According to one scholar, one thirty-second of a day's wage. A day's wage was a denarius. One thirty-second of that was the smallest coins in circulation. She gave two of them. One thirty-second of a day's wage. She came without fanfare. She came without expectation. And she gave. And Jesus calls his disciples together. Hey, guys, don't be distracted by the dude with the funny hat or the dude with the nice robe or the dude with all the kids that he distributed his offering to because that's what we do, right? We give our kids offering and then give, then give to the offering. We do it to. Look at the widow. <laughs> Jesus, she gave one thirty-second of a day's wage. I've got that worth of pocket lint in my ephod. Right? Like, come on, Jesus. No, 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 no. 
she recognizes authority. She didn't give what was left over after she had provided for herself. What she gave was the only thing she had to live on. That's what it says there. She gave out of, out of her poverty, she gave everything she had, even what she had to live on. She gave it. What does it show there? It shows that God loves a cheerful giver. It shows that her greatest contribution was not monetary. Let me tell you, one thirty-second of a day's wage doesn't make a hill of beans a difference. But Jesus didn't exalt the one that gave tons of coins. He exalted the one that gave the smallest amount. Do you know what that means? Whether you're giving little or a lot, the amount is always insignificant to God. What that widow gave was not monetary in value. It was the fact that she gave in faith. Her gift was not money. Her gift was faith in a God to meet all of her needs. Man, we get so hung up on money sometimes. You may be in this room thinking, here, here, here the pastor goes talking about money again. Let me free you. If you don't ever give a dime to this church, I truly believe that God, if what we are doing is of God, that God will make sure we have more than enough to continue doing what we're doing. Save your money and don't give. But if God has your heart, then things that matter to God will matter to you. And if God has your heart and you have put your faith, your confidence, and your trust in him, then where your heart goes, your pocketbook will follow. She gave everything she had. To a God that has everything, money is insignificant. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God's. The things that are God's. The sum total of who you are, who you've been, who you are, and who you are becoming. To lay it down at Jesus' feet in surrender is a game changer. It is an offering of faith. When I was a kid, I, we would go, I went to Bethlehem Baptist Church in Hazel Green, Lick Skillet, right beside Butternag Road. No lie, that's, a, that's, that's serious, that's real talk. And we would get it there about an hour and a half before service, and we would pray. Like, you know, we would have a prayer warrior time. All the men would get together. The preacher, whoever was preaching that day, would sit in a chair, and we would all gather around him and pray. Um, and I'll never forget, there was a little old man there, and man, incredible man of God. But he prayed a prayer one time. He prayed a prayer all the time. And he, he prayed, and this is what he said. Lord, bless the gift, bless the giver, and bless, you know where I'm going? Bless the gift, bless the giver, and bless the one that's unable to give. So what he prayed. And then I remember Joel talking to me afterwards one time. Joel Carwile, he's pastor at First Baptist Athens. I remember him talking to me and sharing with me, you know, Alan, the gift and the giver exist, but the one that is unable to give does not. Not in God's eyes. 
Because if you are living your life outside of God's will, then what God requires of you is to give him your heart. And when God has your heart, regardless of what you make, regardless of the income, you give and you give sacrificially, faithfully, and sacrificially. Why? Because God has called you to it. God has your heart. And then when we recognize his authority over things like money, we're not so concerned about holding on and trying to protect ourselves with it. I said, there's not really someone who's unable to give. God calls us all to give, to be obedient. And we don't just give once we tabulate all of our budget and we look at all the things that have to be purchased and all the bills that have to be paid and then we decide if we're going to give or not. The beautiful thing about what God has called us to do is to give on faith. I don't know if it's going to work out or not, but dadgummit, God ain't getting robbed. We might rob him, but God ain't getting robbed. We may not get everything we want. We may have to live on ramen and love for a few, for a few weeks, but God is getting his. We give on faith. Our contribution in giving is never monetary. It's always faith. Always. So think about that. This is what God has called us. This is what this poor widow, we find that she was the wealthiest of those that Jesus watched give great sums of money. But the widow is the wealthiest. Why? Because she trusted the God who has infinite wealth to provide for every one of her needs. Thirdly and finally, we see the worship of a woman. Mark 14, flip over a couple pages, beginning in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, by the way, that's just glossed over. Apparently, Jesus healed him of leprosy. That's the only way you hang out in the house of a leper is if he's been healed of leprosy. And the only person that was in the leprosy healing business in that day, and by the way, for all of Jewish history, was Jesus, right? So Jesus had healed him. Now, we don't have record of that necessarily, but... The scroll, if, if the heavens were the scrolls, is what Luke tells us, if the heavens were the scrolls, there are not enough things, there's not enough room to write all that Jesus did, right? So this is one of those accounts that we don't have, but Jesus had healed a leper. They're hanging out at his house. Jesus is reclining at a table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. In that day, the perfume was more of a focal point of the home. It was more of a centerpiece, a, a, a topic of discussion than it was actually for use. In fact, the, the container that it was in would be in a container that if it was ever broken, if you actually wanted to access the stuff inside, you would have to break the flask. And once it was broken, you use it and it's over. They don't have, didn't have squirt bottles or, you know, get a small little bit and rub it on your neck or your you know, I don't know you women do this. I don't know what that's all about. Man, at least my wrist. I, my, my whole body stinks, but my wrist smell great. You know, I don't know why y'all do that. Y'all do. I watch my wife do it. So that's not the way it does. It's not the way that it worked. Once it's broken, the seal's broken, it's broken. It's worthless from that point other than the ointment that's in there. And so she breaks this flask over Jesus' head. Other accounts tell us that she anointed his feet as well. 
There were some who said to them indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? Why was it wasted? How costly was it? For this ointment could have sold for more than 300 denarii and been given to the poor, and they scolded her. 300 denarii, 365 days in a year. If it was over 300, so now we're getting close to a year's worth of wages is how much this cost. In fact, it was more than this woman could have ever accumulated more than likely in her lifetime. This was probably a family heirloom, and even though it was really costly, money-wise, it was probably even more valuable because it was probably handed down as a family heirloom. This is great, 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 meme all, you know, Mary's perfume that she had. That she got. Remember this occasion. They probably told stories about how she came to acquire this stuff. And she broke not only money but memories. She broke it and she poured it on Jesus. What a waste. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whether the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's significant. Let me tell you somebody that you need to be like. You need to be like, of all the characters in the Bible, you need to be like Mary. I need to be like Mary. This is Mary Bethany. This is Mary Lazarus's sister. Other gospel accounts tell us that. Mark doesn't give her her name, but the other gospel accounts do. The three times that Mary of Bethany is mentioned in the gospel, she is always at Jesus' feet. Always. The first time... Her sister Martha, Jesus, tell Mary to get her lazy do-nothing up and help me make dinner. Why? Mary is at Jesus' feet. Learning, growing, being with Jesus. When Lazarus dies, four days after Lazarus dies, Mary could have been upset. She could have locked herself in the room when Jesus showed up. The audacity of his friend not to show up and to heal him knowing that he had the power. She could have pouted. She could have ran away from Jesus. But she runs and scripture tells us she falls at Jesus' feet. In her sorrow, in her despair, she takes her concern, her worry, her pain, and she lays it at Jesus' feet. And then here. We don't know if Mary knew the significance of what she was doing. I tend to believe she didn't. What I tend to believe is Mary was probably of this mindset. I need to be with Jesus. I need to show him how much he is worth to me. And so I need to find the thing of greatest worth that I have. And I need to give it 
to him. I need to lay it down at his feet where I want to stay. I need to anoint him with this perfume that, yes, is, is costly, but it means way more to my family. I don't care what the disciples think. I don't care how I'm ridiculed. I don't care how the, the, the glances and the glares I get from my family that saw me get rid of Meemaw's perfume. I don't care about any of that. It's the most valuable thing I have. I'm going to do all I can to worship Jesus. And she did what she could. Gave up what was most valuable to her because she recognized the authority of Jesus in her life. She worshiped Jesus. And it was Jesus who assigned the value. Jesus was the one that said, Mary may not understand what she did. Let me tell you what she did. She has prepared me for burial. She has prophetically been moved by the Holy Spirit to give what is most valuable to her so that you guys could see that my life is about to be laid down for you. This is what Mary did. Unbeknownst to her, she was just worshiping Jesus. That is how our life is to be lived. When Jesus has control, in things that seem routine and mundane, people see Jesus in them. Things that have just happened, getting up and spending time in God's word, loving our husbands and our wives well, being fathers and mothers that raise up their children in the way that they should go, coming, attending church, being a part of small group, discipling one another. Those are ordinary and mundane things that we may not grasp the significance of, but the world sees Jesus. They recognize our worship. That's why Jesus would say, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. This is what Mary declared. This is what she declared through her worship, so much so that every time the gospel is heard, people remember Mary, who prepared Jesus' body for burial even before he was crucified. This, in the book of Mark specifically, makes a very strong turning point. From this story on, we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His betrayal, his death, burial, and resurrection. Mary, her unadulterated, surrendered worship is the turning point of the text that Mark gives us. What an amazing thing. Man, we can make worship about a lot of things. But you know what worship is? Worship is giving God what is most valuable to us. What is most valuable and allowing others to see Jesus through it. Plain and simple. A life lived well in obedience to him. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's the greatest commandment. It's the heart. It's not the external. You may have come to church for a lot of reasons. 
God is concerned with your heart. Would you give that to him today? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by this. Maybe you're here and maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. That's what it requires. There's no worshiper of God outside of a relationship with God. So if you're here and you've never entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter things in your past. It doesn't matter how good or bad. God loves you. And he loves you to the extent that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. And if you would believe in him and you would surrender your life to him, you can be saved today. So today, if that's a decision that you need to make, please don't leave this place. Don't put that off. Get it right. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to go into a time of response and invitation. And then we'll bring it, drawn, be drawn it to a close. If you're here and you need to respond to Jesus, don't, don't leave. Don't leave without doing that. Maybe that response to you, maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you need to get some things right. Maybe there's things that you need to lay down. Maybe this altar is the place for you. Here in front of this stage, just laying down things that have become idols. You just need to get right. Maybe you need to pray for someone, intercede for someone that needs that relationship or needs to get right, needs to be reconciled. Maybe they're that person that in your heart and your mind before now has just been too far gone. Maybe that's who God is turning you toward. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to follow him in obedience in that way. Maybe you need to join our church. Just respond as the Spirit leads. Jesus, thank you that you have done it all for us. All that we have to do is to choose you. Choose you as Lord and Savior. What I pray for today is not an external show that a lot of people can applaud. What I pray for is heart change in our hearts and lives true repentance leading to salvation. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you do for us. Help us to serve you, live for you, and respond in this time as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? This time is for you. You need to, re- need to respond to relationship with Christ. Need to make any decision today. I'm here. Would love to talk to you. Would you come as we sing?